Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13. Those were wonderful passages of Scripture we just had read to us. The lengthy passage from Isaiah chapter 37 is also found in 2 Kings 19. It's in the Bible twice about Sennacherib. I hope that you saw God's sovereign rule of that man. That was the great empire before the Babylonian empire. That was an empire so great that it mocked and laughed at the empire of Egypt. And yet the Lord said, you are nothing but a tool that I'm using. I sent you. I formed you. I have given you all the strength that you have. I have made all the nations before you weak so that you were able to defeat them. And now that I'm through using you, and my man Hezekiah has called on me to avenge myself, killed 185,000 of them in one night, sent him home to have his two sons kill him in the temple of his own God. Is that a glorious sovereign God? No, there wasn't an accident in the whole thing. There wasn't a coincidence in the entire event. And you should look at all world events the very same way. God, you, God raises up wicked and base men like Adolf Hitler, a demented lunatic, and used him to punish the nation of Germany, most of all, then to punish the atheistic nation of the Soviet Union, next of all. And then we had a few nuts over in Japan, and they got pounded as well. And we, and England, and France, and other nations of the world, got slapped. And every nation should have humbled themselves and examined themselves to find out where the sin was that God was chastening. Because there was sin in every quarter. But the nation that suffered the most, Germany, was also the nation of Europe that sent forth the most filth in its anti-God rhetoric before that event. Higher criticism, textual criticism, the primary fountainhead of all that garbage and atheistic ranting of idiots comes out of Germany. And so God pounded them. And when we look at world events like a world war, we are not surprised by it. We don't shake at it. Because the God of heaven it raises up men, base men over those kingdoms. He uses them for a while, then He crushes them. And we see those events just like we saw in the life of Sennacherib. And these Bible stories are to build up our faith and confidence so that we know how God operates in the world. So that when we think we see such things happen, we know there is still a blessed and only potentate, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He raises up one nation against another and dashes them against each other and destroys them. And in every case, as Jeremiah put it in Lamentations that we began with a while ago, what should we do? We should not complain. We should examine ourselves and find out what sins are in our lives that have caused the God of heaven to bring chastening upon us. There is such a great difference in the God that we see in the Bible and that He has revealed Himself to us and the God of the Arminian confusion around us. When we have the nation's pastor, and I've mentioned this before, and I could fill you with quotes from his mouth. Billy Graham is the man I'm referring to. I'm referring to the events of 9-11-2001 when a, the nation's pastor says, we do not know why God allows such things. Well, he may not know, but we all know. Right. He didn't just allow it, he commanded it to be done. I don't even care who did it. You can be as conspiratorial as you wish to be. I don't care who did it. The fact that it came down was God's commandment. Amen. And our nation should have humbled themselves instead of singing, God bless America. 
They should have said, God, save America by your mercy and grace, for we are a sinful nation. And they should have made some changes, but there wasn't a single change made. And you never heard the word sin mentioned. Two weeks ago, we had another lunatic unload himself on the campus of Virginia Tech. Again, you didn't hear the word sin. You didn't hear the word repent. Both of which should have been in the first sentence out of everyone's mouth. That campus should have been in sackcloth and ashes. Nineveh was wise enough to do it. You know, the capital city of that Assyrian empire. Jonah, the unwilling prophet, went and preached to them and they repented in sackcloth and ashes. God had mercy on them. Our nation doesn't do a thing of that. No repentance. No mention of sin. That lunatic killing those people in such a blind, selfish fury is created by our nation. We've been over all that. We don't shake at any of that. We understand why it happens. We understand who ordered it, and we understand who restrains it. Surely, the wrath of man shall praise thee. Surely. I don't doubt that one bit, do you? Were you surprised? Did you think God was out of control? Were you confused that He didn't know what was going on and wasn't restraining things? Surely, the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. So, the amount of wrath that occurred on that campus or anywhere else at any other time is the amount of wrath that praises God. And He restrains all the rest. He sure does restrain a lot, doesn't He? We all wonder inside why why things like that don't happen more often given the violent bent of our whole nation. I want to use a verse from Ezekiel chapter 13 to provoke your minds and hearts that there is such a great difference between the God that's commonly preached from most pulpits today and what the Lord has shown us out of His Word. Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 22. The God of heaven is blasting the false prophets of Judah. Because with lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. False doctrine makes the heart of the righteous sad because it steals from them the glory of a great God and the reward that there is for the righteous. And then it strengthens the hand of the wicked by telling him that God is a God of love and promises him life. That there will be peace to the wicked when God has said there would be no peace to the wicked. And that was Ezekiel's message that God was going to destroy Judah for their wickedness. What a difference. The true religion and true preaching will make the heart of the righteous glad. And it will turn the wicked from his wicked life by promising him death if he continues in that course of wickedness. Our God did not get into trouble in the Garden of Eden and have to think of a remedy through Jesus Christ. Our God is not trying to save anyone but will certainly save every single one He has chosen to save. Our God uses every good or evil event of man for His own praise and restrains any other event that He can't use or doesn't want to use. Our God is in total control of all events in history, large and small, political and personal. He is a glorious and victorious sovereign whom we gladly worship and who will save us without fail. Amen. Their God got into trouble in Eden 
when his beloved couple rebelled in sin and brought death to pass upon the human race. He loves all men so very much that he tries to save them all, but he greatly fails with most of them. Most of his beloved objects are in hell because his love is so ineffective that it cannot win them or save them. And those that are in heaven are there by what they did, not by what he did. Their God confuses his poor worshipers who do not understand the presence of evil in the world. Their God is a sky buddy watching from a distance who cannot accomplish his will in time or eternity because his will is that all men shall be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We understand those words and we know that his will is accomplished in exactly that sentence. His will is that all sorts of men, because that is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, will be saved. And they are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Thank God He said all sorts of men because we're the lowest and basest of sorts and He has saved even us. Amen. We're the fulfillment of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. Our God versus their God. Thank you, Lord, for revealing Yourself to us. May we humble ourselves before this God. May it bring gladness into our hearts. Right. Why do we consider this subject? Why should we consider it? We want to glorify God because this is one of the beautiful attributes of Himself. He had Solomon, he had Agur, excuse me. We always think Solomon wrote all of Proverbs, and it doesn't tell us that. Prophet Agur wrote chapter 30, and Prophet Agur said there are four beautiful things in the world. There's the lion for his glory and power and reigning sovereignty of the jungle. King of beasts, we call him. I don't care if you like the tiger or not. I like the tiger too. My brother and I used to have fights all the time as to which favorite animal would whip the others. You know, we'd have been dog fighters if our parents would have allowed us to have a leopard, a tiger, and a lion. We'd have put them in a cage together. I say that because I know some of you love the tiger, and the tiger is a wonderful animal. But even mankind knows that the lion is the king of beasts. You know, when a lion roars in the jungle, you can hear it eight miles away. Ever been in a zoo about 30 feet from one? It'll shake concrete. What a magnificent creature. God loves the lion. He turns away from none. Then there's a greyhound for his speed. There's a he-goat for his agility and magnificence on rocky slopes. And then there is a fourth beautiful thing, a king against whom there is no rising up. Amen. God loves dominion. And he loves a king that has absolute despotic power that no one can rise up against him. You know, the kings that we read about in the Bible, all they would have to do is frown. they just put a bag over your head and took you outside and cut that ugly head off. That was, those were the kings of the Bible. We don't, we don't see any authority like that. Our poor president, he's being pummeled in the papers every day, and Congress gives him such difficulty. We don't know authority like there was in the Bible. But God said a king like that was a beautiful thing. You know, we don't ever read about a democratic society. God never ruled anything by committee, ever, ever. You say, what about the 70 elders of Israel? They didn't rule anything. All they did was take the little dinky stuff so that Moses wouldn't have to waste his time on it. A king against whom there is no rising up. It doesn't say a council. It doesn't say a congress. It doesn't say a supreme court. It says a king against whom there is no rising up is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God, and he is that king. He is king of kings. Amen. And so we love to read about kings. And that's why you read last night Isaiah chapter 
10, which was about the king of Assyria as well, and how God considered him nothing but a saw in his hand that he shook back and forth. That king thought that he was picking up the riches of the nations as easily as a man gathers eggs. In fact, nothing even peeped against him, he thought, until the Lord destroyed him. Then we had read to us Habakkuk chapter 1, where in Habakkuk chapter 1 we moved to the next empire. That was the Babylonian Empire. Our brother John Fisher read to us about the Chaldeans, that fierce and hasty people, and how their horses were so swift and how they would come in and destroy all the nations around Jerusalem and then take Jerusalem itself. And then it said that king offended by passing over. He crossed a line and all of a sudden began to think that he was the one responsible for his military successes when it was all God using him as a tool. And he offended the God of heaven. And then God turned against him. And we know what happened. That poor man went out to pasture for seven years right. until he blessed and praised and extolled the Most High God. Amen. The Bible is full of wonderful things like that. When you read them, what does it do to your soul? Does it, does it fill your soul with joy and gladness that we worship such a great God. It should. For the Lord our God is a great God and a great King above all gods. And then, of course, Romans chapter 1. The sovereignty of God. I showed you that I exist from my creation. You are without excuse. If you want to rebel against that knowledge, then I will make you fools. And I will turn you over to where you can't even figure out that you ought to take a woman to bed. And I will turn you over to many other things that are not convenient. Because that that I just referred to, brethren, is not convenient in more ways than one. Think. I love the God of the Bible. Amen. Don't let anyone ever confuse you by saying we don't know where sodomy comes from. We know exactly where it comes from. It's God taking off wire nuts in the heads of men and rewiring them. Giving them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. That is sovereign might. Amen. You know, we try to do that in laboratories with mice. God does it in the laboratory of this earth with men when they do not humble themselves before Him and praise and exalt Him. If you think you're not capable of a sin like that, all He has to do is loosen a wire nut and stick another wire in there and you would do anything. But for His grace, let us not offend. Let us not pass over. Let us not harden our hearts as in the provocation. Let us humble ourselves before Him. Let us come before Him and kneel and worship Him. And let's rejoice while we're doing it. Because what a great and wonderful and glorious God He is. And He's not just this sovereign God. He is our Father. He is our Father. We are His people. The sheep of His pasture. He is our God. God considers it beautiful, so we consider it beautiful. I want to teach you contentment to your life's circumstances and submission and thankfulness for them. And you will learn that by learning that God is in charge of all that affects your life. I want to teach you to hate anger and bitterness against God. When people get angry or bitter against God, what a terrible thing to do. We are merely the clay and He is the potter. The clay does not have a right to be angry nor to even question the potter. I want to teach you total dependence on the Lord to provide for you and to protect you at all times. I want to teach you a proper peace and perspective for analyzing evil in the world. 
I want to teach you the proper doctrine of salvation. Remember that there's a sovereign God in heaven who chose vessels of mercy afore prepared unto glory out of the same clay of humanity as those He chose to show His wrath and His power upon. Amen. I want to teach you godly fear from this intimidating and overwhelming aspect of God. The Bible says stand in awe and sin not. Right. We want to stand in awe of this glorious God. And I want to teach you humility that anything you have and anything you are are by that, that God's use of your life and His gift of those things to you. You did not earn them, win them, or get them by your merit or value. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong, nor are riches to men of understanding. But time and chance happeneth to them all. It is God that makes us to differ one from another. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And if what you have is what you have received, then why do you glory as if you did not receive it? It was given to you as a gift. I appreciate the feedback that I got last Lord's Day from the clarification and the difference between God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence. Look at Genesis chapter 18. I want to review that just briefly and fill it out a little bit more and show you how great that difference is and what men do when it's explained to them. Men hate the sovereignty of God unless they are taught in their hearts and in their minds by God to love it. It is too humbling for man. He wants to be in control of his life and his destiny. And to find out that there is another being in charge of his life and destiny is too much for him. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14, the Lord is speaking to Abraham and he wants to know why Sarah, his wife, laughed. Abraham had not been a good enough husband to this woman to teach her that the Lord was able to do anything. And so the Lord says in verse 14, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? What's your wife laughing for? Because I said she's going to bear you a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. You're nine months away from being a father. What's she laughing about? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now that's a verse about God's omnipotence. Omnipotence means omni, a prefix, all, and potence, power, all power, all powerful. God is all powerful. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. And so we say He is omnipotent. The word omnipotent is not in the Bible. We simply use it as a one-word description of God's unlimited power to do anything He wants to do. He can create anything. He can providentially support, supply, protect, or anything. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, there's nothing too hard because He's got enough strength. That is not the sovereignty of God. That is omnipotence. That is His strength and His power. Sovereignty, or what we mean by His dominion, because the word sovereignty isn't in the Bible. The word sovereign is not in the Bible. The word dominion is in the Bible. And that means the right to rule. The authority to control all objects and to make decisions according to his own will that affect them. Sovereignty. The ability, the right, the authority, the power to control, to rule, to reign over creatures and to choose for them by his own will whatever he wishes. That's sovereignty. That's dominion. And that's the difference. Men love to hear about God's omnipotence. You can preach sermons forever about God's omnipotence and the great things He did. 
But then when you go beyond those great things that he did and look at the fact that he did them for some and he did not do them for others, then they get angry. I'll show you in just a second. By omnipotence, I said this last Lord's Day, but let's think about it. By omnipotence, God could create an ostrich. He has the ability to speak the word and the dust of this earth, or out of nothing, becomes that ugly bird with the long neck and the little head. But his sovereignty is the one that said, when I create this ostrich, I am going to deprive it of wisdom so that it is one of my stupid creatures. This is in the book of Job. God said to Job, can you do things like I do things? Since you're calling me in question, you want me to come down and have a table discussion with you about your righteousness. Can you do things like I do things? I made the ostrich and I deprived it of wisdom. That little head it's got doesn't have a brain. That's why it lays its eggs in the sand and stomps around and crushes most of them. Then he goes on and says, and by omnipotence, God could create a horse. And the Lord says, can you create something like the horse? That beautiful creature that swallows up the ground and has no fear of all the shouting and spears and and shields that are raised against it, but dashes across the ground and plunges right into the middle of it. Can you do something like that? He made it beautiful. And he made the ostrich stupid. But do you know what he did, what he said in defense of the ostrich? Go look this up in a Google search. When the ostrich raises itself up on high, nine feet tall, it can outrun any horse in the world. And the Lord said that. Those were his final words for that poor bird that was denied a brain. When it lifts itself up on high, it despises the horse and its rider. That's that's sovereignty. I can make something stupid and ugly. I can make something beautiful, intelligent, and useful. But I'll still give that one a little bit of speed to whip this one. Do you read the book of Job with pleasure? The book of Job is full of pleasure. And so is the zoo. It's a great house of worship. To go and see those creatures that God made and to see the sovereign power of the differences He made. Now look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I know I've said that. I hope that the, I hope that the year 2007, all of us, or most of us, will make it to a zoo. Anybody that wants to take me to the zoo, I'll pay for you. Just take me. If you want to go to Columbia where we can get a little better one than Greenville, let's go to Columbia. If St. Louis wants to invite us over to go to the zoo in St. Louis, they got a bigger one than Columbia. Let's go see some of those creatures. God made enormous differences among them, and it's not just omnipotence. Omnipotence is the ability to make different creatures, but sovereignty is the choice that He makes to make some ugly and some beautiful, some useful, some totally unuseful. You know, everyone's got unique features that you can just laugh at, rejoice in, and, and or be intimidated by it. You hear the, the roar of a lion? It's a wonderful thing. You say, Lord, you are great. Or you look at someone, you say, Lord, you are funny. Because he is. And I won't mention my favorite creature again, because you'll think that I'm too crude. John chapter 9, verse 1. We want to know the difference between omnipotence and sovereignty, between omnipotence and dominion. God can do anything. And He asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we answer, no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord because you have all power. But that is not sovereignty. How He exercises and uses that power is sovereignty. When He uses it to help some and not help others, that's sovereignty. When He exercises and uses that power and discriminates among men, that is sovereignty. 
John chapter 9, verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. We understand this. We, we know that this man had sinned and his parents had sinned. This is not a statement that there were three people that escaped total depravity and weren't sinners. This is how we read our Bibles, brethren. Right. We rightly divide the word of truth. We understand that's not being said. There's a context for these verses. Jesus is answering their question. He, does he have to repeat their whole question for you to understand his answer? No. We rightly divide the word of truth. This man nor his parents sinned to cause his blindness. He was born blind because I wanted to manifest myself through him to this generation. He was made blind for the glory of God. He fumbled through his childhood. He fumbled through his schooling. He fumbled on a bicycle. He ran into things for years for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say he's unfair that the man was ever born and had the pleasure of breathing in this life was a blessing from God he did not deserve. Listen, if you could be used for the glory of God by being blind for 25 years and then being healed by Jesus Christ, would you take it? Amen. And have Him come and say to you, I am the Son of God. That's the difference between omnipotence and sovereignty. Omnipotence says God can make a man with working eyes and God can make a man without working eyes. Sovereignty says, where does He decide that? How does He decide that and to whom does He decide it? That is sovereign right to choose whatever he wishes to do to his creatures. By omnipotence, God formed Pharaoh in the womb. By sovereignty, God chose to use that man formed in the womb and raised to the throne of Egypt to display his own glory in the earth and to get himself a name. That's sovereignty. Turn to Luke chapter 4. This is an important chapter about this subject. Luke chapter 4, men love omnipotence. They love a God that is powerful. But they do not love one unless spoken to by God the Holy Spirit, regenerated and given an understanding heart. They do not love one that makes choices and discriminates in his exercise of that power. In Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus Christ has returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And he comes into Nazareth where he had been brought up. Verse 16 tells us this. And as his custom was, wherever he went, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And they deliver him the Scriptures and he reads to them and he sits down. And he says, this day are these Scriptures fulfilled in your midst, in your ears. He says it very graciously and the whole crowd wonders at him and he knows what they're thinking. They want him to have a miracle demonstration like he's had in other cities. And he says to them in verse 23, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. They want to see him do his miracles. If you're the Son of God and if you're someone important, we know who you are. You grew up among us. If you're someone important, then do some of your healing here. Physician, heal thyself. Physician, if you want to show that you're a real doctor, a real physician, a real healer, a real miracle worker, then do some of it here. You know, we would say to a doctor, doctor, you know, when you go into a doctor's office, 
for a cold, and he has to turn twice and blow his nose, you say, physician, heal thyself before you work on me. Please understand the, what we have here. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Then he tells them about sovereignty. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Think about that. God, by Elijah, brought a famine after three and a half years of no rain, a severe famine that was throughout all the land of Israel. But there was only one widow woman delivered from that famine in the particular and special way as the widow of Sarepta, of city of Sidon, a foreign pagan nation. Amen. He had just told them he's not going to do any miracles there because they didn't want to give him any honor because he had grown up among them. And now he tells them about the sovereignty of God of their, out of their own scriptures, out of, their own, out of their own history of their own nation. One isn't enough. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So the Lord Jesus Christ establishes the sovereignty of God in a second illustration. Verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. There were many lepers under Elisha's ministry, and Elisha only healed one. Naaman the Syrian, the enemy of Israel. You want me to do what I did in Capernaum in your nation? While you're already disrespecting me because I grew up among you? Forget it. Don't you even know the sovereignty of God and the display of His power? He did it for a woman of Sidon, and He did it for a man of Syria, while overlooking all the lepers and overlooking all the widows of Israel. Now, what they th- did they understand the lesson? Oh, yeah. They understood the lesson. Look at the next verse. Verse 28, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. How could they be filled with wrath when it was out of their Scriptures and these were Bible stories they had been taught from childhood? Everyone loves the story of the widow woman of Sarepta. It's in almost every Bible story book. Everyone loves the story of Naaman the Syrian being healed of his leprosy in the Jordan River. It's in almost every Bible story book. But when it's applied this way, I'll do my miracles where I well choose to do them, and I won't do them where you want me to do them. Then they hate those lessons. And they were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They had just wondered at his gracious words, and now they want to kill him. And all he had said was, two object lessons, two stories, two historical events in the life of their nation. Men hate the sovereignty of God. It is omnipotence to be able to heal a man from leprosy. It is omnipotence to be able to supply food for a widow woman. It is sovereignty to choose to do so for one and not others. For a woman of Sidon and not of Israel. For a man of Syria and not of Israel. And God does that, and Jesus preached that message and walked through that angry crowd. 
with a sovereign power all around him that they couldn't touch him. They were not going to be able to exercise their will that day. Famine or leprosy is nothing before omnipotence, but God sovereignly chose only two to heal. The reaction then is the same reaction today when you preach the full sovereignty of God. By sovereignty, God is the potter and we are the clay. Could there be any better statement than Romans chapter 9 that says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power, authority, and right to rule over the clay, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Jesus would put it this way in Matthew chapter 20. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Right. Remember, he hired some at the beginning of the day, 6 a.m., penny for a day's work. And then some later, then some even later, then some at 5 o'clock in the afternoon before pay time at 6 o'clock. Hired them all for a penny. They came and complained. They came and complained. He said, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? And we are all his own because we are the work of his hands. We are the clay and he is the potter. Praise the God of heaven. When we think about the sovereignty of God, there are those that will raise up and say his sovereignty cannot extend to the wicked deeds of men. We have just read last night and this morning several passages of Scripture that say his sovereignty does indeed extend to the wicked acts of men. They extended the wicked acts of Sennacherib, the wicked acts of Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean. The wicked acts of Sodomites. Because he rewired them. Because they rejected the truth that he gave them out of the creation of the world. But let's look at this one some more because we want to fully understand that even in the wicked deeds of men, God is in full control and using those events for His own praise and His own glory. And if they were not to be to His praise, He would restrain them and they would not occur. You do not know how many things could occur, would occur, if men had their way. But God does not give them their way because He restrains them. God has no sin, does not sin, and cannot be tempted with sin. God did not create sin. God does not make any angel or man to sin. God does not tempt to sin by infusing evil desires. doesn't have to. we got plenty. God does not approve of sin as sin. God only approves of sin as a means to His own glory. Sin is the result of a rebellious creature violating a law of God. Never get confused. Never have let someone say to you, and it's a scorner that does so, so you should spend very little time with them, that say, well, if God's sovereign over all things, then God created evil. No, God did not create evil. God created creatures very good. He said they were very good. He gave them a free will, that thing that you, the scorner, wish you had. And then he created a clear commandment. That's all he did. The commandment was good, and man was good. The commandment was good, and Lucifer was good. They rebelled. That's how sin came into the universe. God didn't do evil. He didn't create evil. And he didn't put evil in any creature. 
He gave a creature a free will and gave a commandment. And that's all that it takes. Sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4. That's where sin comes from. Sin is the transgression of the law. We have just studied the book of James not too long ago, and it says plainly there, Do not err, my beloved brethren. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Sin is the result of a good creature being created with a free will and a commandment being placed before that creature and that creature choosing to rebel against its creator. Satan did it. Adam and Eve did it. Was God surprised by the devil doing that? Not at all. Was he surprised in Eden? Not at all. He had already foreordained the Lord Jesus Christ before he created Adam and Eve and had already chosen us in Christ Jesus before the world began. He wasn't surprised at all. There's much more to be said about Adam. We want to go to sin in general. Adam. Could God have kept Adam from sinning in the Garden of Eden? Most definitely. He's he's a master at holding men back from sin. Haven't I just quoted Psalm 76.10 several times? And the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain? Did Abimelech take Sarah into his harem? Was he able to touch her? Why wasn't he able to touch her? Because God said, I kept you from touching her. Well, why didn't he keep Adam and Eve from touching the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because that was not his purpose in the Garden of Eden. Did he make Adam and Eve take of that fruit? Not at all. They did it most willingly. Adam chose Eve over God. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. This is the life of Joseph. We've just been over this. Let's remind ourselves of one of the lessons we learned of how God was sovereignly in charge and control and directing His life throughout. This is one of the great examples in the Bible of God overruling sin, using sin, directing sin to accomplish His good purposes. Genesis 45 and verse 7. Joseph is telling his brethren, God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. He tells his brothers, and he doesn't take away the the blame for those brothers. Those brothers sinned. We don't misunderstand that. We, We know what the Bible says. They hated their brothers. They hated their brother, Joseph. But Joseph is able to understand God sovereignly overruled your hatred of me and used it for his own good. God sent me down here. And just think about it. Reuben said, put him in a pit, meaning to deliver him later. All the other brothers wanted to kill him. So God restrained their evil actions so they could not kill him. When did God know that there was going to be a, a train of Midianite slaveholders coming by that way? was before the foundation of the world, we believe, that He worketh all things according to the counsel of His own will. All of a sudden, they looked up and said, well, look at that. And they sold Him. They wanted to kill Him. Go read about it. They wanted to kill Him, but they ended up doing what God wanted them to do. And what God wanted them to do was to sell Him down into Egypt for everything we get to read about in the book of Genesis. They were evil. God was virtuous, righteous, and holy in everything He did. He restrained them from killing 
He allowed them because that was his purpose to get Joseph down into Egypt. He didn't even let Reuben get him back to his father. Even though Reuben wanted to get him back to his father, which was a very good thing to do from Reuben's standpoint. But it didn't fulfill the purpose of God as well as him being sold as a slave down into Egypt. Genesis chapter 50. This is throughout the Bible, and you want to learn to look at all events this way. Man is still responsible for his sin, and God is to be glorified for using man's sin for his own praise, for his own purposes. And he does use it. Genesis chapter 50. Here Joseph is again speaking to his brethren. And he says in verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. This is the perfect explanation of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty extending to the sinful deeds of men. Ye thought evil against me. Your thoughts and what you did in selling me to get rid of me so that I would not be the irritant that I was because you were jealous of me, that was all evil. You sinned. But God meant it unto good. God took your evil and accomplished good with it by getting me down into Egypt where I can save the whole family tree alive. Which He did. And those 70 turned into several million. And they marched out of Egypt 215 years later. Look at Exodus. We've already been there. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 2. We weren't there today. We were there last Lord's Day. Deuteronomy chapter 2. God's dominion includes the sinful acts of men. He'll restrain it. Nope, you're not going to do that. Did they break a leg of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. Because by the time they made their rounds, He was already dead. So they pierced His side. Did they need to pierce His side? Were they going to pierce His side? Had the Bible already said His side was going to be pierced? Yes, it was. And John wants you to know when he writes that record in John chapters 19 and 20, he said, I was an eyewitness to these things. I want you to know that the Scriptures were fulfilled perfectly in how Jesus Christ died. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 30. This is Moses recounting to Israel what had happened to them on their way toward Canaan when they came out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 2.30 But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. How did the Lord get rid of Sihon, king of Heshbon? He hardened his heart so that the man would think that he could defeat the nation that had just destroyed Egypt with its armies and its pharaoh and its wealth and its produce. He hardened his heart and made him obstinate. How does the Lord harden a man's heart and make him obstinate? The same way He turns vegetation into coal. By His Son, shine, and the formation of the earth. His goodness turns vegetation into coal. Don't blame God for Sihon, king of Heshbon, all he has to do is lift some of his ordinary carefulness and let loose his ambition 
And there he goes. And there went Sihon, king of Heshbon. There went Pharaoh. And there went Sennacherib. And there went Nebuchadnezzar. Because God just directs them toward one thing. We don't know all the details. Sihon, king of Heshbon, probably called his war council around and said, should we make war? Look what these people have just done to Egypt. Should we fight them or let them pass through our land like they're asking? They have said they will not hurt anything. They will just want to pass through our land. How do we know how another war council took place? God sent a lying spirit down to deceive those prophets. Since those people loved to lie, He gave them what they wanted. We chose lying and death and the devil in the Garden of Eden. And when God gives us what we asked for by our most noble and esteemed representative, don't fault Him for giving us what we asked for. But He was hardened and made obstinate, and they destroyed Him. You know about Pharaoh. I want to show you how often this is in the Bible. Joshua chapter 11. You know how many times it said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He had told Moses long before Moses ever got to Pharaoh, I am sure that Pharaoh will not let them go. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Joshua chapter 11. The passage I didn't turn you to was Exodus 34.24. We looked at it last Sunday. Exodus 34.24 told Israel, the men of Israel, do not fear to come and worship in Jerusalem three times a year or wherever God worship was being, was being made. Do not fear to come for those three feasts away from your homes and to leave all your property, all of Israel, unprotected. Because during those three times a year, I will take away the desire of all the nations around you for your property. Right. It will be entirely safe. They will just not ever think about taking unprotected property, which is pretty bizarre for Canaanites. They just won't think that way. But notice the difference in Joshua chapter 11 when Joshua takes the armies of Israel into Canaan. Joshua 11:20, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. These are the nations of Canaan. That they should come against Israel in battle, that He might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that He might destroy them, as the Lord commanded Moses. It would have been hard for the Israelites to walk into a city of the Canaanites and kill every man, woman, and child, and ox, and ass, if they were all sitting there just going about their normal daily activities. Are you, are you following? Did you read the verse? Did you understand the verse? So, he hardened their hearts so that they would come against them in battle, so that it was a whole lot easier to do that, and to fulfill what God had told Moses to do to all of them. This is the sovereign God of the Bible. The God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. He has revealed Jesus Christ to us, and our form of worship is different. But He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. It was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that He might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that He might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. There was already the evil in their hearts that they wanted to destroy Israel. There was already the evil in their heart. They wanted their things. There was already the evil in their heart. They wanted that wealth they were carrying in their pockets that they had taken out of Egypt. God just helped direct them at that time to come in battle against Israel, and they were destroyed. This is the God we worship. 
we read about it every day in the newspapers. We read about him every day in the newspapers. You know, some have said that history is his story Amen. of what he has done. This is the God before whom we ought to come with thankful hearts, joyful hearts, sing, give thanksgiving, bend our knees and bow down before Him and worship Him. This is the God before whom we should not harden our hearts as this generation did in the day, the generation before this one of Joshua 11 did in the day of provocation. But we should humble our hearts before Him, love Him, Believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and commit our lives to serve Him. This is the Word of the Lord, and we'll take this up again after our break. Amen.